Hello, welcome to episode number 134 of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul, and in this episode we're going to hear from Chiara Maritato. She is a postdoctoral researcher at University of Turin's Department of Cultures, Politics and Society, and the author of Women, Religion and the State in Contemporary Turkey, which was recently published by Cambridge University Press. The book examines the causes and effects of women's expanded role in Turkey's state religious agency, the Presidency of Religious Affairs, or Dianet, over the past two decades. It argues that the rising number and expanding role of female preachers and officials in the Dianet since 2000 has helped forge a new religious identity combining piety with a modern working life, redefining the boundaries between state and religion. We discuss all that a bit later on, but before we get going, let me just remind you that you can support the podcast by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Membership gets you extras, and I'm pleased to announce that those extras do now include an updated exclusive discount deal, giving Turkey Book Talk members a 30% discount off the price of books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's Extensive Turkey and Ottoman History category. Every one of the Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is now available to Turkey Book Talk Patreon members if you use the special code that I'll give you when you sign up. That deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and ebooks. If you're already a member, do check out the email that I sent out with this episode where I include that new discount code. Turkey Book Talk members also receive transcripts in both English and Turkish of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published and you get transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including a number of extra ones not previously published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics and journalism in the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to articles and other content related to the subject in the email that I send out to members with every new episode, which of course is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now onto our conversation with Chiara Maritato. I started by asking her how she first got interested in researching this subject. All right. Indeed, actually, everything started while I was reading an article on uh, women imam, on women imam employed and uh, sent to public institutions such as hospitals or uh, women's shelters. I was interested, but also curious about, first of all, the fact that there was a kind of new role for women, uh, like uh, women employed in a religious environment, let's say. And then I tried to employ kind of uh, very particular specific political science methodology which is political ethnography and even more specifically the ethnography of policies to try to understand and to, to approach politics from within to understand to questions the meaning of policies try to see what's going on when an institutions like a state institution an agency like the dianet decide to at some point increase the number of women within its its cadre 
who started this policy? Why? What was the role of women in this decision? Was it uh, like a kind of state decision delivered on a silver plate? Or what, what role had women in it? So that were, that were my um, original questions, let's say. But it was mainly drawn by curiosity in the sense that at the time there were only a few works, academic works. One was by a research by Professor Fatma Tutunju and the second one was another paper written by Mona Assam. Other than that, the literature was mainly devoted on the activities and the engagement of uh, women engagement in um, Islamist movement in Turkey, Islamist party as well. So that was also my my curiosity and idea, the idea that I had to try to investigate further this subject. Now, the research that you conducted was very detailed. It involved observation of sermons, religious courses, seminars, etc., uh, accompanying women employed by the DNR as they perform their various tasks in Istanbul, in the districts of uh, Beşiktaş, Üsküdar, Bahçelievler, Kadıköy, Güngören, Başakşehir and Beyoğlu. So very extensive stuff. And obviously, this is quite a sensitive area that you were probing into as an outsider. So I just wonder what the response was like. Was there any pushback? How did the women you were shadowing respond to your requests and inquiries? And how did they behave? Yeah, indeed, it was quite extensive. And actually, I deliberately selected many of these neighborhoods, many of these areas. But at the same time, in some cases, also the choice was also dictated by connections and uh, networks, friends of friends of the preacher themselves, that sometimes at the end of the meeting actually suggested me to contact the preachers of another area to uh, be in touch also with their so in this sense, I never experienced real pushback or somehow any difficulties to attend uh, the sessions except once uh, that was in Beyolu. At the time, in 2013, when I started this uh, this research, it was in the aftermath of uh, the Gezi protests and uh, the Gezi movements was uh, still there. So the local preachers, the Beyolu preacher, asked me to obtain a permit, like an official permission from the local Mufti office in order to join the, the meeting, let's say. So I went, I obtained this permission to go in, to attend uh, in the mosque, but then she uh, declined, saying that Beyolu was already full of journalists at the time and too much in the spotlight, let's say. So I, I just attended the meeting, but then she refused to keep on continuing our, that I, I could not attend anymore there. But really, this was the only one episode out of more than 60 that year, only that year. So, I mean, I cannot say that that was relevant in that sense. It was quite the opposite. As I mentioned at the beginning, they were suggesting me other colleagues to contact. So that's uh, just a very nice and interesting uh, topic, actually. Now, the book focuses on how women's employment in the Dianet expanded over the past 20 years, essentially. So since 2002, with the rise to power of the AK Party, the Dianet has become one of the largest state agencies 
and its budget and the number of its employees has really skyrocketed. And this has led to an increase in the number of women religious officers, employees of the Dianet. Uh, so you quote a figure in the book that women made up 4% of the Dianet's overall personnel in 2004 and 16% in 2015. And presumably it's risen further since then. Could you just sketch out for us the background of this expansion? Why did it happen and what were the factors at play? Yeah, we should stress that there are for sure three main factors. First of all, the availability of on-the-job market of a high number of religiously educated women with master degrees, PhDs in theology. Uh, but also, we can say the presidency, uh, the Dianet presidency at the time, uh, in the early 2000, from 2003 to 2010, of Ali Bardakolu, who somehow initiated this change in including women and in increasing the number of women in the institutions. I mean, this concerned preachers, Weiseler, current teachers and uh, vice muftis. And uh, that means that also, uh, for sure, in the Dianet bureaucracy, like uh, in Ankara and in Istanbul or uh, all provincial offices, women also are uh, appointed as head of the department, for instance, heads of uh, departments or offices, which means that, for sure, there have been also women leading or being uh, somehow in charge of male colleagues which is a market change in an institution which uh, which has been historically, traditionally male-dominated uh, in that sense, in that respect. The extent uh, of this policy, for sure, has concerned not only big cities. Now, women are employed as preachers in Turkey, uh, all over Turkey, but also uh, women preachers, for instance, are sent uh, abroad where uh, Turkish communities are um, living. So that means that like their male colleagues, women are charged with diffusing religious principles, religious educations, but also providing moral support to the population. And women played a very distinctive role in Turkish Islamic movements in the previous decades, particularly in the 1980s and 1990s. They played a very significant role in uh, particularly, for example, uh, reaching housewives at the neighborhood level for various Islamist parties, precursors of the AKP. And uh, that at the time was fairly revolutionary in Turkey. Just talk about that. How did women's role in Islamic movements in previous decades shape female religiosity, essentially, and lay the groundwork for the DNA expansion that you study in the book? Yes true this this is crucial this is a crucial point but in, in some sense we, we see that this kind of incorporation into or embedding of women in the political realm and also we can say in the religious one had also the effect of silencing the more active voices within the Muslim women organization and I could experience this of course considering the Dianet issues uh, at the very beginning of this policy those women who were more, let's say, active in, and vocal in, for instance, encouraging more projects connected to, for instance, women interpretation of religious text or topics like the voice of Islam. I mean, what Islam says uh, concerning violence against women, for instance, they have been slowly, especially after 2010, somehow encouraged to get retired from the institutions and today they are
are no more working for the Dianet. So in that sense, uh, we can see that this inclusion may signify also a composition of certain demands, as well as silencing of voices that, because of either their political ideas or religious interpretations, stand out from the crowd somehow. And I would also add that this incremental inclusion of those uh, women who were militant in uh, Islamic movements, now, actually now they are bureaucrats, so they are state employees. In the case of the Dianet, as I mentioned, so their role is has also profoundly changed in this sense. I also want to talk about the role of Imam Hatib schools, particularly from the mid 1970s. You talk about this in the book, Imam Hatib schools. Obviously, these are religious focused high schools in Turkey, and their fortunes have waxed and waned over the years in kind of line with the political climate. And uh, they were originally open to train preachers and imams, but today they've actually become, you'd say, heavily weighted towards female students. And many of these students subsequently enroll in theology faculties in university. And in the 1990s, the number of women students at Imam Hatip schools was almost double that of male students. Pretty striking statistic. Just wonder what role have Imam Hatip schools played in preparing a very large groundswell, essentially, of women employees for the Dianet in the years that you were studying? Yeah, Again, this is important. On December 14, 1976, Turkey allowed female students to enroll in religious vocational school known as Imamati. So this school uh, and this decision was crucial because, of course, at the time already some secularist circles reacted to this change and this uh, this reform, asking how did schools that were conceived to educate imams open to female students? If these students were supposed to be the schools where imams are trained, then how to link this with women, with female students, if then they could not find any kind of any kind of jobs afterwards, right? So this was already there. And uh, as you also mentioned, indeed, it's crucial to say that in the 90s and still today, I mean, the number of women and female students, both in the uh, Imamatip schools and in the Faculty of Theology, is also quite high. We should not forget that for many uh, conservative families to send their daughters to school, I mean, to allow them to pursue uh, education and to continue education, Imamatip schools were the only choice. And that was the reason why many of my interlocutors, they attended Imamatip schools and after that they graduated from theology as well. So that was also for um, many, as I say, traditional families who saw these schools as a place where, you know, gender segregation was for sure there and it was considered as a safe environment for their daughters. So this is also, of course, a decision that from one side allowed women to continue education like high school level and uh, university, but on the other side extremely linked religious education and women. In a sense that, as we arrived in the early 2000s, we had a very table high number of women graduated from theology on the job markets, but they could not become imam, because of course women cannot be imam, but they were there on the job market and they could be easily employed when the Dianet launched this reform. 
we know also for sure that the Dianet was the first, while wearing a scarf for, and being graduated from theology, the Dianet was the very first place where they could be employed. Yeah, I wonder about that. You mentioned the headscarf there, and particularly after the 1997 so-called postmodern coup, there was this increasingly large supply that coincided or rather was combined with this glut of new graduates from Imam Hatib schools of religious and qualified women trying to access the job market, wearing headscarves and therefore unemployable essentially in the public sector because of various unofficial and official bans. And you talk about how the Dianet became a tool, really, through which Turkish state included a lot of these women among the bureaucracy. Just wonder how the, uh, if you could reflect on that, how the increased visibility of women in the Dianet contributed also to uh, the increased visibility of headscarf wearing women in public, essentially, at least in the public sector. Yeah, the 1997 coup, I mean, the 28th February 1997 coup, as you mentioned it, is uh, for sure a very crucial point and a crucial moment. All my interlocutors, they were continuously referring to the 1997 coup, and this was considered as a process, a shared experience, but also still vivid, and according to them, somehow defines an opposition between an oppressive past, in which they were victims to a liberating present, right? This was also there in many conversations I had. If we have to link this also to their visibility nowadays, it's important to, to notice that today, while performing their activities, Dianet preachers are also working outside the mosques. They reach women in hospitals, but also in other Dianet offices like the family guidance and consultations bureaus. And in these occasions, they also played a role somehow supporting women, providing them moral assistance, guidance, moral support, spiritual support. So their visibility is connected to a new role and a new visibility of religious officers in Turkey. So I would say that it's not only the visibility of scarf anymore, it's also the visibility of a new role they are somehow embodying. And you mentioned in the book about revising your prior assumptions about Islamic feminism and how this is actually opposed by the Dianet hierarchies. So basically, having women employed in the in the Dianet does not necessarily mean greater rights for women or even a more feminist perspective, because women employed by the Dianet have to really defend and advocate patriarchal norms, essentially, that are really intrinsic to the institution. Preachers working for the Dianet, women preachers, are not calling into question the institution's dogma and official discourse. These women, the vast majority, don't define themselves as feminists and they don't they don't promote Islamic feminists discourse. Just talk about that aspect, how this finding perhaps upended your prior expectations. Yes, exactly. I mean, this was something that I could see and test while listening their seminars, the exegesis even of the Quran they are providing to women. We can find this, for instance, in the Anet publications. Uh, if, we, if we go through the uh, vast publication that the Anet has on Islam and women, uh, Islam and family and women and the mosque and so on and so forth, if we read all these texts, we see that there are some reference, constant references to a sort 
sort of golden age for women at the very beginning of Islamic tradition, let's say, and a reference to Mohammed's wife, so Atije, Aisha, daughter Fatma, uh, of course, all are there to testify somehow a model of an educated woman uh, engaged in society, respected also by religious authorities. So in the sense that the Dianet is for sure presenting this reform is completely in line with what was the Islamic tradition. The very word reform is completely opposed in the sense that there is nothing new according to Dianet Yerashis. I mean, they are not doing such a kind of change in this policy because, I mean, the Islamic tradition was already somehow giving space and a role to women. This reference to uh, Islamic tradition and the role of women in that sense is also fully part of Islamic feminist narratives. However, some reference to feminism are indeed misleading because in promoting female predication, exegesis, I mean, these women, as you also mentioned, I mean, they are not contesting the male hierarchies within the family, but also within the Dianet itself. And uh, actually, those women among the Dianet's female personnel who attempted to frame women issues also through a feminist discourse, but also those women who within the Dianet encouraged, like, let's say, some female interpretation of the text, they were kept away from the institution. So unlike what I had expected, the fieldwork observation and the interviews forced me to take more into consideration how women employed by the Dianet had to defend, advocate patriarchal norms. So this was a kind of important and critical moment in, uh, in, that, uh, in that sense during, during the work itself. So bringing women into the fold effectively has actually helped expand the state's orthodox religious position and reaching more women and families through women employees of the Dianet actually intends to enlighten them more about morality. And this is part of a much bigger political will really to shape future, quote, pious generations, creating pious citizens and really laying the groundwork for a, a new form of conservative society, essentially. What is the role of women Diana employees in that big project, reaching women and families as part of this larger pious generations project, this broader mission to create and expand the religious, uh, religiously conservative society? Yes, I think women are today, they are uh, really in the forefront. If we say their uh, moral missions that they have is to reach as many women as possible, but also reach younger generation through different channels, I mean, media, communication and publications, of course. Th this role is, is crucial to forge this idea of morality and, I mean, moral principles also and extend these principles through the society. But at the same time, they are also somehow representing a um, redefinition of the meaning itself of Dianet religious services. I mean, religious services have changed and expanded a lot. What does it mean? I mean, this religious service is not linked only to official celebrations of religious feasts or religious special uh, religious celebrations. I mean, this is the everyday 
work that, that is conducted within also the mosque and in the Anet offices, uh, the family offices, for instance. I mean, the, uh, what the, the Anet says, again, in official publication, is that the believer, for instance, is not coming to the Anet because of a specific question, a specific problem, or a specific moment in, moment in life. On the contrary, the Anet is offering a religious services, uh, which is a holistic pastoral care. The pastoral definition is in many Anet publication to teach and to train imam and preachers to be there for any aspect, any problem people might have in their own life. It's not only a specific moment, as we could imagine the role of imam, right? Also, as of course, a guide providing spiritual guidance. But now it's really a redefinition of religious services, which for me is truly interesting. And particularly this idea that irshad, irshad, so guidance, let's say, more guidance, spiritual guidance, is in the sense political because it's kind of morality which goes beyond uh, the intimacy of the individual that at some point in life might need a guidance. But it became a real political mission of an institution through its personnel. It can reach and use this instrument to somehow carry on this moralizing mission or at least attempt to do it, of course. So I would say that there is sure this idea of shaping a pious generation, as you mentioned it, but um, I think that to study and to understand how deeply th this attempt is conducted, we should also pay attention to how religious services have transformed and have expanded currently in, uh, in Turkey. That was Chiara Maritato. Many thanks to her for joining for this episode number 134. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you could support it by becoming a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that updated 30% IB Taurus Bloomsbury book discount, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also, do please rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via Twitter or like our Facebook page. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners. So do send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And finally, don't forget to check out Friends of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is an email newsletter put together by journalists Razier Akkoch and Diego Cupolo. It's a very useful weekly package that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, arriving in your email inbox every Thursday. Turkey Recap also includes links to interesting articles as well as some excellent puns. Just go to turkeyrecap.com to find out how to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Get